This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Republican lawmakers are putting forward a bill to name the Henry All-Weather Rifle as Wisconsin's official state rifle. The lever action gun is produced in northwestern Wisconsin and won the coolest thing made in Wisconsin contest in 2019, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Republican Representative Trig Pronshinsky of Mondovi, who helped introduce the bill to honor the firearm, says it would recognize the state's hunting tradition and manufacturing sector. One opponent of the bill, Democratic State Senator Senator Chris Larson from Milwaukee, thinks the bill is so silly that the city has faced a surge in homicides since the pandemic began, with guns being the predominant weapon. The Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign will hand deliver a petition to legislators calling on the state to expand Medicaid and move toward universal health care. A press release from the group said the petition, with nearly 1,000 signatures, will be delivered next Wednesday to the state's Joint Finance Committee. The Federal Consolidation Appropriations Act is separating the continuous coverage requirement from Medicaid that had been in effect under COVID-19 emergency rules. The Poor People's Campaign believes that will result in 300,000 people losing Medicaid coverage in Wisconsin when the change takes effect April 1st. The event will start at 11 a.m. at the Capitol Building on Wednesday. A press conference conference with Wisconsinites testimony will follow. The state of Illinois reaped $36.1 million in tax revenue from Wisconsin residents who crossed the state line by cannabis in the fiscal year 2022, reports a memo from Wisconsin's nonpartisan Legislative Fiscal Bureau. Democratic State Senator Melissa Eggard of Madison said today that Republican lawmakers' refusal to legalize cannabis is fiscally irresponsible. As, as a state assembly member, Eggard introduced the first bill proposing full legalization of cannabis in Wisconsin back in 2013. Eggard called Wisconsin, quote, an island of prohibition, unquote, and said Wisconsinites are hurting because of it. Recreational cannabis is also legal in neighboring Michigan, and a legalization bill is advancing in the Minnesota legislature. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers included a provision to legalize recreational cannabis in the biennial budget request that he unveiled last month. The Salvation Army will be using a $4 million grant to fund a new emergency shelter for women and children. NBC 15 reports that the new center will be in the 600 block of East Washington Avenue and will feature an affordable housing block. Salvation Army coordinator said the grant was spearheaded by Senator Tammy Baldwin and Representative Mark Pocan to create a stronger Madison community. The new building is suspected to be functional next Friday. And Burrito Drive, a local favorite on South Brearley Street, will be closing its doors on March 26th. The restaurant has been serving the Madison community for 16 years, but it has faced challenges during the pandemic. In an update, managers said they were honored to have served their great customers. And now on to today's top stories. Amidst the more high-profile elections and referendums on the spring 2023 ballot is a new municipal 
is a new municipal referendum to restructure how alders are elected moving forward. Wondering what that means for you? WRT reporter Aaron Ashley has the story. The proposal would stagger alder elections so that only half of the council seats would be up for change in any given year. That's a change from how alders are currently elected, in two-year terms with all seats up for election at once. I spoke with Eric Paulson, the District 3 alder who put forward the proposal to place the referendum on the ballot this spring. There's a ton of warning when you first join the council, and I can say that as someone who's joined the council a year ago takes a long time to kind of come up to speed and, and to learn things. And you rely an awful lot on your colleagues to do some of that work. And so when we are all up and we're all sort of changing over at the same time, you run into instances where, you know, a whole lot of people are new to the council and have to learn all this together. Paulson says that by staggering alder terms, the Common Council will retain more knowledge on the day-to-day workings of local government and address community needs more effectively. If passed, alders in even-numbered districts would only serve one year in 2025, before being up for election again for a two-year term. Alders in odd-numbered districts will continue to serve on two-year term limits with no change in 2025. I asked Paulson how the council came to that decision. A pretty obvious way to do it is to put the evens, the evens on even years and the odds on odds years. So we could have looked at trying to do something where we are a little more geographically smart to stagger out a little bit to have that changeover, but that would get kind of weird to remember who's up what year. So we settled on even and odd uh, seats and even and odd years as a very straightforward way to do it. This upcoming referendum is the result of years of studies conducted by the Task Force on Structure of City Government, or TFOGS. The task force was set up in 2017 to study the ways in which local government could be made more effective and responsive to Madison residents. I asked Paulson if there had been any investigation as to whether the one-year term in 2025 could disproportionately impact specific communities following the recent redistricting, but he said that no investigation had taken place. City Attorney Michael Haas says this referendum would be binding. So the, the council has passed this ordinance contingent on it being passed in a referendum. So if the referendum passes, the ordinance will go into effect, but there will not be any noticeable change until the 2025 election. Meaning that older persons up for election on April 4th will serve a full two-year term. In 2021, Madison voters saw four other referenda on the ballot that were prompted by the same task force, which were advisory only. Those questions asked voters about the ideal number of alders and whether alders should switch from a two-year term to a four-year term and remain full-time or remain part-time. Among those advisory questions, voters supported only one change to the city council, term limits. They did so by a large margin, with 71% of the vote in favor. Voters also resoundingly supported keeping the council at the same size, with 70% of the vote in favor for keeping the size at 20 alders. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. Bus Rapid Transit officially broke ground in December, and construction of BRT stations is just getting underway. And while construction for the east-west bus line is expected to last through the middle of next year, transit officials are already starting to plan for the next leg of the project. Transit planners gave more of a timeline at a meeting earlier this week, WORT reporter Faye Parks sifted through the details for more on what to expect. Construction for Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, is officially underway. 
In an informational meeting on Tuesday, transit officials outlined the plans for the next year of construction for the first BRT line, which will eventually run in a 15-mile stretch from one side of the city to the other, using dedicated bus lanes through the heart of Madison. According to Mike Cechvallo, the deputy project manager, the first route will run east to west and be known as the red line. What we will be constructing is this red line going from west to east between Junction Road and uh, East Springs, East Town area, uh, through University Avenue, downtown area in East Washington. Bus rapid transit officially broke ground in December at the construction staging ground on East Washington Avenue, just off Capitol Square. The first phase of the project to bring buses every 15 minutes with limited stops comes in at a cost of $160 million, two-thirds of which is funded by a federal transportation grant. About one-third is funded by the city. The construction of bus stations is starting on the west side. Planners are leaving the furthest west terminal on Junction Road untouched for now. Earlier this month, crews kicked off construction at the intersection of Sheboygan Avenue and Eau Claire Avenue, just off University Avenue in the Hill Farms neighborhood. Chekvela tells WORT to plan around detours that are already in effect. Generally, we have Sheboygan Avenue closed just east of Eau Claire Avenue to construct the new station on Sheboygan at Eau Claire, and so routes 2, 28, and 8 are detoured in that area. We also have ongoing construction on East Washington Avenue that's been going on over the winter, uh, but there should be no significant changes to bus service on East Wash. We do have a couple temporary stops that are in, in temporary places and things like that, but buses are operating normally. Major construction of each of the 44 bus stations on the Red Line route will take two to three months. When one is done, crews will move on to the next, moving from the west side to the east side to build the infrastructure for the first phase of BRT. All stations for the east-west line are expected to be built by mid-2024. Then, stations will be outfitted with heaters, along with new fare collection machines which accept cash, credit, or debit. Full east-west service is then expected to be launched in late 2024. Transit officials expect to start planning for the second phase of BRT, a north-south line, this year. Chekvala says they're hesitant to announce a timeline for the completion of that line just yet. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway has continually touted BRT, saying it's a change necessary to accommodate Madison's growing population and reducing congestion as the city is expected to gain 70,000 residents by 2040. She's also pointed to the importance of fast and reliable transit options as city residents increasingly struggle to find affordable housing close to where they work. But her challenger Gloria Reyes has pushed back on BRT, criticizing its cost as the city's debt load ratchets up. She's also criticized the closely related network redesign project to overhaul the entire network of bus service across the city. She says the changes weren't equitable and the community wasn't fully engaged in getting feedback for the changes. The issue has remained a focal point at at least three community forums just this week, as the conversation occasionally became heated. Opponents have echoed these concerns, including the decision to prioritize the east-to-west route over the north-to-south route. Chekvela said this decision was based on ridership. More than 120,000 jobs and 80,000 residents are within a 10-minute walk of this route. The basic reason is that we have a lot of very high ridership along uh, this corridor. The next informational meeting will take place on Thursday, April 6th at 6 p.m., focusing on the east segment of the red line. An additional meeting to outline the downtown segment of the line has yet to be scheduled. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. It's now 6.18 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
With the spring general election less than three weeks away, we continue our coverage of the Alder races on the ballot with a trip to the Far East Side. Alder J.L. Curry has represented District 16 since 2021 and spoke with the WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout earlier today about why she's seeking re-election. So just to start here, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who, who are you? Sure. Um, so my name is J.L. Curry. Um, I'm a lifelong Madisonian, was born and raised, and have spent all of my time here on the east side. I'm a social worker by education. Um, in my full-time job, I work as YWCA Madison's housing director. Um, so dealing with all things housing, homeless issues related, housing affordability, that's really my passion and honestly the reason that propelled me to run for office two years ago. And then going off of that, why did you decide to run for re-election here? Being an alder is a very rewarding but challenging opportunity. There's a steep learning curve, and so after almost two years, I feel like I'm finally hitting a groove in terms of balancing um, constituents' communication, making sure that I'm attending committee and board and council meetings. Um, and then trying as much as possible to be accessible and out in the community. I'm running for re-election to continue building upon the work uh, that has been achieved during my first term. Some of that work includes increasing our stock of housing, um, both affordable and market rate and single-family homes. I'm also running to continue enhancing the engagement with the, the residents that I serve. We we have a lot of work still yet to do in Madison, and um, I honestly would feel remiss if I didn't continue enhancing and building upon the things that were achieved over the last two years. All right. Now I want to turn our eyes onto the city of Madison now. As a whole, looking at the city here, what are the most pressing issues that, if given another term, you would want to address? Yeah, there's there's a lot. If I can maybe just list three or four Two years ago, we were in a different place with the COVID pandemic. Obviously, we're still in the pandemic, but I think looking towards our budget for the next year and knowing that the one-time funds of the American Rescue Plan Act, which just made its second year anniversary, are starting to diminish and deplete. And so I think there is an absolute need to focus on economic stability um, and stabilizing the things that we were able to create. Um, but making sure that we still provide a robust, comprehensive service and amenities to our residents. Transportation and, and safety um, are a big thing. We, within the last couple of years or within the term that I've served, um, have seen some drastic changes to our public transit, our Madison Metro bus system with the BRT routes and the, metri- uh, the network redesign that's getting ready to roll out as well. Um, and also starting a study to see about feasibility for a real um, setting. So it's definitely making sure um, we are making smart, well-informed decisions about our budget in this next year, making sure that we support transportation needs of folks. And housing is always a big issue, not just creating enough housing to keep um, up with our demand, but making sure that we are intentional about affordability and the many layers of that and have a multifaceted approach to our housing crisis or I'd say affordability and housing crisis. 
And then in terms of transportation safety, we've seen some some increases with speeding and, and reckless driving. And it's one of the biggest things that I hear about when I'm talking to my neighbors. And so um, continuing to work with inter, interdepartmental work and collaboration of supporting our Vision Zero project, but also uh, spreading education and and knowledge and uh, as much as possible traffic engineering enhancements to make our streets more safe for everyone. And now diving into a couple specific issues, you mentioned public transit there, and specifically you mentioned bus rapid transit, which is set to take off next year and network redesign starting up later this year. How, how do you feel about those, those projects? So I um, have been a supporter of BRT across the board. Our current access to public transportation, there are some of us who are privileged and lucky enough to not need to rely on it. But those that have been relying on it have been telling us for quite some time it's it's not convenient um, to meet their needs. And so I'm excited to see with providing more frequent and quicker access what our ridership looks like. And hopefully uh, it encourages those of us who do have a car and don't have to rely on that transportation to opt in to using a more environmentally friendly um, product. I think in terms of the network redesign, it's been quite some time since we did that or redesigned our network. And while I understand that there were some concerns regarding access and equity, I am proud that we have something to move forward with. I think it's it's important to keep momentum going. And um, I am optimistic based on all the work city staff did, but also being open to adapting and making amendments and adjustments where necessary. So one of the key pieces within public transportation, as well as thinking about those who it's their primary transportation method and making sure that we keep those rates affordable and access to um, affordable purchase of ridership or bus tickets also made is prioritized. Now, another big issue that you mentioned there before is housing. Now, what sort of key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to bring more affordable housing that you'd like to expand on in the council? Sure. So um, there were some exciting things that, again, happened within this term. I think continuing to look at how we use housing. So our accessory dwelling units and being able to have properties on single-family homes that provide a great opportunity for additional housing options. Continuing to look at our zoning policies and updating practices that are more in line with the social and economic needs of our community. So a recent example of that was the passing of the transit-oriented or TOD overlay zoning which encourages higher density infill and also modifies zoning near transit corridors. Because housing affordability is one of my my passions and key pieces, I'd like to use the knowledge that I've acquired as a now will be hopefully seasoned alder um, to dig a little deeper. So, for instance, knowing that there's a cap kind of on the amount a unit can stay affordable uh, the city right now is undergoing a process of reviewing its list of expiring units and, and figuring out what steps should be, but making sure that affordable housing is affordable for the longevity versus like a period of 40 years or less. 
another thing to take into consideration is developing varying options of housing choice. I often hear um, folks talking about the amount of, of high rises and apartments and dense housing that's going up, but we need to have a multifaceted approach to that and also do all that we can at the local level, knowing that we're preempted at the state of things like rent control as well as initiatives to expand diversity and inclusion within the real estate industry and developers and making sure that folks are not just developing housing stock because we need it, but there's also an investment in the community um, that comes with that development. And now, lastly here, taking an eye at your specific district here, District 16, what are some specific issues to your district here? What have you heard from potential constituents? Sure. I'd say the the number one thing is traffic safety. So again, um, the use of vehicles, but also considering our pedestrians and bicyclists, there are several uh, elementary and middle and even high school um, located within District 16. So making sure that we keep our streets safe and accessible for all that use them. Neighborhood safety and awareness is is a piece as well. I, while campaigning, am seeing much more ring cameras, and so having conversations about that and ways that neighbors can make themselves and others aware of how to um, look out for each other and, and promote safety. Another thing is before redistricting District 16, it's geographically large but was mostly growing in industrial growth. And now there's been opportunities or there are opportunities to grow residentially. And so, again, turning towards a multifaceted um, approach to housing and knowing that there are specific subdivisions or area parcels of land that could be used to build single family homes, row houses, townhouses. And so talking with residents, using the information and feedback that they're sharing with us and Um, hopefully being able to propel that as developments possibly uh, occur within District 16. I've been talking with J.L. Curry, current alder of District 16, who is running for re-election in next month's spring general election. Now, like she said, that election will take place on April 4th. Uh, Alder Curry, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Nate. Every other Thursday, and even Thursdays when it's not snowing, WORT contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open government issues. And this week on Transparency Talk, Kamenick and Chester take a look at the winners of the 2023 Opie Awards. All right. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined in the studio for the first time ever by Tom Kamenick, founder and president at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you doing on this rainy Thursday? Great, Jonah. I came here to Madison to testify on some legislation and happy to stop by the studio. Well, we're happy to have you here. Like I said, uh, we've been doing this uh, feature for uh, roughly three years now, give or take. Um, and you've never actually, we've never actually recorded in the same space. So it's a cool change of pace. Uh, anyway, without further ado, let's jump into what we got for this week's Transparency Talk. We're talking about the Opies. Tom, tell me a little bit more about what the Opie Awards are. This We covered it a few times before on the show, but for a refresher. Yeah, this is part of Sunshine Week here in Wisconsin. Happy Sunshine Week, everybody. The Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council puts out these awards every year, and they are awarded to celebrate those who are fighting to further the cause of transparency in government. 
And there is one dishonor award for somebody getting in the way of transparency, too. Mm, the dishonor award, the award nobody wants. So let's go through some of the awards categories and highlight this year's winners and, in one case, uh, loser winner, I guess. Uh, so let's start out here with the Mopey. That is the Media Openness Award, and that goes to the Badger Project. That is one of my clients, and the Badger Project, with Peter Cameron at the head, has filed two lawsuits in the last couple of years against police departments for disciplinary records, and we just won one of those cases two days ago. Badger Project and Peter Cameron, they've been writing a series of articles about problem officers being shuffled around from department to department with little transparency. Mm-hmm. And moving right along, because we got a lot of ground here to cover, uh, let's talk about the Popey. And these all have, I love the names of these awards every single year. Uh, Freedom of Information Council, as it turns out, has a sense of humor. So this year's Popey, or Public Openness Award, goes to Jim O'Keefe, the director of the City of Madison's Community Development Division. Honestly, I'm not too familiar with uh, Jim O'Keefe, but that's probably a good thing. If I haven't heard his name come up, (laughs) he must be doing a pretty good job because people are not coming to uh, complain about him to Mm me. Uh, So the award indicates that he has um, he spends a lot of time talking directly to reporters. He Mm -hmm. is easy to access, answers a lot of questions, helps people out to solve communications issues in the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was here at Wart as the assistant news director and uh, uh, was covering stuff for the six o'clock news, he was always very nice and he always always very patiently walked me through issues. Very cool guy. And moving right along here, we got the COPE, that is the Citizens Openness Award. And that one goes to Friends of Frame Park, which, uh, you know, close listeners of Transparency Talk, that, uh, that name might be raising bells in their head. Why would that be, Tom? Not too many people win these awards for losing lawsuits, <laughs> but this is the group, Friends of Frame Park, that fought all the way to the Supreme Court trying to get these records about contract negotiations between Waukesha and a proposed baseball stadium operator, which eventually fell through. Now, unfortunately, in that case, the Supreme Court not only ruled against the group on access to those records, they gutted the attorney fee provision in the law, but still Friends of Frame Park deserves credit for their willingness to fight. I want to shout out to attorney Joe Sincata, a friend of mine who had represented them all the way through that fight through all levels. And fortunately, the legislature is trying to fix that mistake right now. I just testified in favor of a bill to do that earlier today. And that's why you're in Madison. Um, So we've actually covered that bill on the show before. So if people want to learn more, uh, head to the Transparency Talk archives. Maybe listen back to that episode. I don't know. Uh, Moving right along, we got the Scoopy. This is my personal favorite category as a muckraker and investigative journalist. That is the news story scoop of the year, which goes to the great reporters at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel for their Cash Not Care series. Yeah, so this award goes to uh, journalists who are using the records law to, to dig really deep into government affairs. And this uh, dealt with a series of articles that examined the high infant mortality rates among black women in Milwaukee and the malfeasance of the prenatal care coordination companies that were supposed to be helping them out. Yeah, and if you have not checked out that series, I would strongly recommend it. It is some grade A investigative reporting, probably one of my favorite uh, investigative series of the past couple of years, honestly. We only got two categories left. Up next, we got the Whoopi, that is Whistleblower of the Year, and that goes to Mike, and correct me if I got his name wrong, Mike Meyer at the Wauwatosa School Board. That's my favorite name of all of these, is the Whoopi. This is a crazy set of stories going on. Basically, the, the Wauwatosa School Board met improperly in closed session to talk about public record requests that they had received and to chastise Mike Meyer for being 
too open and providing too much information to the public. He blew the whistle on that session, and then he faced a whole bunch of recriminations from the board president uh, for his commitment to transparency. And so he was awarded the whistleblower of this year. Well, uh, and we're going to end on the nopey. That is no friends of openness. The winner of this award could more accurately be called uh, the loser in transparency in Wisconsin. And this year, uh, this honor, dishonor, goes to the Madison Metropolitan School District. You know, MMSD has attracted a lot of critique in recent years surrounding their lack of transparency. Everybody from the Madison Teachers Union to the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty has uh, raised concerns about their lack of openness. Tom, tell me more about why they got the nopey this year. No surprises here, Jonah. The, the school district was nominated multiple times by different people for this award, and it's pretty obvious mm-hmm. who should have gotten it this year. They... Madison School District is constantly delaying responding to to record requests. It is taking people months, if not a year or longer, to get simple record requests. And we learned from a recent uh, some recent reporting that they have been sued five times in the last two years for hmm. records. I've never seen anybody else amass quite that record before. Well, that does it for this year's uh, 2023 OP Award winners. If you want to know more about those winners, I'm going to shamelessly plug my newsroom, Wisconsin Watch. You can find the full list of winners online at wisconsinwatch.org, including links out to some more of that, you know, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel's investigative series and a few other items if you want to check it out. I've been joined in the studio by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for hosting me here today, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Well, today's rain has solidified it. Ice fishing is done here in Dane County. While we still have more than a month before game of fish season officially begins on Madison Lakes, Nate Wiegehout and Pat Hansberg say that there are still plenty of fishing opportunities on this week's Fishy Business. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been uh, some some interesting weather the last uh, couple of weeks here. So let's start off with the the ice conditions. Is there still ice out there for uh, people to ice fish on? Well, uh, no, there there is ice on the lakes, but it is not there for folks to ice fish on. It's just good for looking at at this point, and 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 maybe focusing your energy on hoping it goes away soon because uh, it's not safe. So. Yeah, nobody's nobody's getting out anywhere around town, at least that I know of. So it's just time to time to focus on open water, and that's hopefully just around the corner here. So you know what 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 have you heard around the the Dane County area here? Have you have people been catching fish out there with uh, just on the shorelines? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, some definitely some good angling opportunities around town. Uh, Cherokee Marsh up here on the north side is wide open right now, uh, and folks have been yeah getting a few panfish up there from shore. A couple of folks fishing and down at the 113 bridge down here have been uh, getting into a few fish. Uh, and Monona Bay and the Triangles downtown is also wide open. And uh, there's panfish, uh, bluegills, and crappies in there. So, yeah, still some opportunities. But with game fish season closed right now, um, not a lot of folks targeting uh, walleye and pike anyway around town. So, and with the cold, with the cold, you know, roller coaster weather we've had, you know, frankly, there just aren't a lot of people out getting out right now. But it looks like we got some more and more weather on the way. And when when does game fish season open up officially? I, that that shouldn't be too long here, right? It'll be the first Saturday in May. So I believe that's May 
26th. I, I, I don't have a calendar in front of me right now, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, the first Saturday in May is when, when she'll open back up. You are correct. It is May 6th. That is the first Saturday there. So, you know, uh, going to be going to be a little bit quieter the next couple of weeks here. But that just means that we have a little bit of time to, to get ready for for shore fishing and summer fishing to really sort of kick off here. But starting off, let's just take a look at what's happening on some of our lakes here. Let's start off with uh, Mendota. Anything happening on Mendota? Well, there have been some folks fishing at uh, Tenney Park, the area around the break wall over there is uh, open. And some of the inlets, uh, there's some little inlets like at Mendota County Park, Marshall Park. Some of those areas are open water right now. And some folks are, you know, fishing for panfish down there. I haven't heard exactly how they've done, but uh, I know that there is a few pockets of open water on Mendota. So I guess that, you know, there's definitely, and there's more to come. So um, definitely some options out there. And we'll keep the uh, the lakes a little bit quick this week because, like you sure. said, there's still a little bit of ice on there. But uh, let's look at Monona. Uh, any any word out of Monona? The area out from where the Yahara dumps in there by Yahara Place Park uh, is, had open water actually most of the winter, to be honest. And um, that's uh, I, I saw somebody out there the other day in a in a in a kayak that was fishing. I didn't see him catch any fish, but uh, they're definitely casting a line out so uh kind of envious of them there uh down in um Wickawack, or i i was i'm sorry i was i was corrected this week uh formerly known as squaw bay is uh pronounced weechawak bay so uh that is wide open and a great area to target panfish uh upper mud lake just downstream of there where you, you could launch at uh, lattice park county launch uh is also uh, wide open right now and a great area to look for panfish this time of year and now let's move over to some of the rivers around the area. We haven't touched on those in a little while because, you know, winter, it gets a little little bit difficult. But uh, let's start off with the Wisconsin River out out uh, west of us a little ways. Have you heard anything coming out of the Wisconsin these days? Absolutely. I get a lot of folks coming through the shop here that have um, that are headed up to the river. A lot of folks hitting the Prairie du Sac Dam, Wisconsin Dells Dam. A few folks that come through here head up to the Castle Rock and Petenwell Dams. And all, all of those dams have been holding walleyes uh, this time of year. So it's a great time of year to get out, folks catching them on little walleye minnows, also tossing walleye flies, and uh, jigging a minnow is a great option. But uh, the walleyes back up at all the dams this time of year, and, and, and the walleye fishing, even though it's closed on your inland lakes, is open on uh, your rivers. So um, great opportunity. And also the Rock River, uh, just south of us, uh, Jefferson Dam, Indian Ford, both those areas are great areas to look for walleyes. And so now let's move over to some some trout fishing in the area. What have what have you heard out of the uh, trout world? Well, you know, the, we got a bunch of rain last week uh, that came through. I think we, you know, it uh, was it an inch and a half we got, or, and it you know raised the levels of the creeks up quite a bit. So I didn't hear of a lot of folks getting out, but I know that just these last couple of days, I've heard from a few friends of mine that have been out and doing well. They're um, Mostly still fishing in winter patterns, which is uh, woolly buggers and, and small nymphs drifted through deep holes uh, in that slower water is where you're going to find a lot of your fish. But I have also heard of a few folks uh, getting out and, and fishing and getting fish on dry flies. So the fish are starting to look up. And as, uh, you know, the snow kind of finishes melting here, the temps in those streams is going to stabilize and that'll make the fishing a lot, lot better. 
All right, keeping it a little bit a little bit light this week. It's going to be a little light for a little while here, but uh, that just yeah. means that we're just around the corner from summer fishing and all the lakes having so much action. So uh, keep an eye out for that. But uh, just for today, any final fishing advice for all the people out there, Pat? Well, it's a great time of year during these dark times when we can't get out and and on the ice or or in open water. It's a great time to you know look through all your stuff, get it get it organized, and so. When the time comes, we get a nice day, come up here right around the corner, you'll be ready to go. And we're going to leave it there for today. Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. You can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling one easy number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again, and good luck out there. Thanks. You too, Nate. It's 6.47 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Bringing forward is a sure sign that warm weather is coming. And if you are into gardening, your green thumb is likely itching to get down to business. Now, if you're looking for some inspiration, you might want to pop by a museum. James Nienhus and Erwin Goldman are professors at UW-Madison's Department of Horticulture. And they say it's difficult to find historical documentation of fruits and veggies that could be used to trace their evolution. And in their search for images, it led them to what some would call an unlikely place, the Chazen Museum. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields spoke with the two professors about the intersection of art history and horticulture and what we can glean from examining works of art. A gentleman from, from the Netherlands named Bonga, that was his last name, spent a, a period of time in the great museums of Europe looking at paintings to try to determine when the orange carrot started to appear in market scenes. Carrot was originally purple, and it was purple for thousands of years. It was domesticated in Afghanistan, and it spread to Turkey, and it, it was a very uh, important vegetable crop. But... It wasn't until some period of time, say several hundred years ago, that the carrot became orange and Bonga was able to demonstrate or at least propose that the orange carrot arose because he could see in the market scenes and the, and the, and the kitchen scenes of Renaissance paintings the appearance of orange. All of a sudden, in the Dutch paintings in particular, orange appears. And so we talk about this in our horticulture class as a, as a way of... Talking about vegetables, they evolve over time based on our desires. We liked the color orange, and when orange arose, we selected it, we humans, we selected it and we propagated it, and it became the dominant color. So then is is this like carrots, like tulips? People created this color in order to make them more palatable, to make them more visually pleasing? You know, here's here's the most fascinating aspect, actually, is that the, the, the pigments, the carotenoids, in this case lycopene, right, these pigments are associated with light, light uh, absorption. 
And to my knowledge, before you actually crack the watermelon open, <laughs> it's kind of dark in there. <laughs> so the question, we haven't studied that. <laughs> we haven't looked. I mean, well, you know, there be, could be. be yeah, there could be know. little windows, yeah. you know, around. My mind is going to be blown so many times today. <laughs> so the question is, why the heck would you have carotenoids on the inside where it's dark? And that's so that's it's because just, we did it. We selected it, you know, and it's... It, we found variants occur, mutations occur, and we choose them, and we chose this color for the melon. We chose the orange color for the carrot, and all of our vegetables are this way. I mean, we variations that occur, and we're attracted to those, and we choose them. But in using works of art to find these clues... But here's the deal. See, we, we're vegetable guys, so we've always been incredibly envious of the grain people because they could go and they could dig up grains, you know, in Afghanistan or Ethiopia, right, or Mexico, and they could look at the evolution of the grain, you know, and its shape and size and color over the, you know, over the millennia. But vegetables are water. I mean, they're 95% water, or in some cases 100% if you consider, you know, lettuce, right? And... They're, so they're perishable. So we we have no historical, you know. And this was before they were domesticated before the Kodak, so we don't know what they looked like. And then it, so it occurred to Irwin and I that really the best evidence we have for this is still life paintings, right? The Natura Morta, right? The still life paintings. So we can go to art museums and we can see the history of domestication of our vegetables. So Jim. Are there any sort of manuscript, just no sort of record as to when we started, you know, propagating, when we started splicing? How is this reached? This, this is actually fascinating as well. We know more about the wild, because we know the genetics and cytogenetics of the vegetables, we know more about the wild relatives, right, that occurred probably eight or 10,000 years ago than we do. The, the part of the history that we really lacked was the last... 500 to 1,000 yeah, years, that's and right. that's what, what Irwin and I are finding that we can see through Renaissance art. So then, when you go into a museum and you approach these paintings, what are sort of the criteria that you look for? Are you solely looking at the vegetation and the fruits, or are you looking for a specific period? Well, here's what's fascinating. You look at a painting, and you look at the, you know, the origin and name of the, of the artist, and you look at the date. And then you see the, and then you see tomatoes, and you know that the tomato had to occur after you know sometime after Columbus. So you're fascinated by the fact that, you know that a, that 50 years or 100 years after the discovery or rediscovery of America, that tomatoes are pictured in Renaissance art. Isn't that true? Or That's right. What about artistic license? You couldn't rely on solely one painter or even even one period of painting but rather you have to have some other observations as well a lot of what we're trying to do is to try to put together the biology with what we see in the in the in the art world and try to make a whole story out of it this is just one piece of evidence so erwin have you found things in paintings that are confusing or unidentifiable? Certainly. I mean, I think it's, it's really important for us to communicate that vegetables and fruits are evolving. 500 years ago, they looked different. We had different ones available. We have, different, we have new ones now. I mean, take, for example, the, the pluot. 
Take, for example, all these new things you see. They evolve over time. So part of what we're looking at is a window in time, and the Renaissance is a window when we can see what our vegetables may have looked like 500 years ago or 400 years ago. And we can use that as a way to think about what, what have we done in plant breeding? What have we done in farming to change those? So let's back up from the painting a little bit. When you see these works that have fruits in them, is it able to tell the position of the person in the painting or the time period based on what fruits are available? Is there evidence of trade? Is there evidence of, what do you say, Jim? When we see Renaissance art, we're often fascinated by the fact that some of the vegetables don't coincide. So it, it suggests that perhaps part of the painting was done, you know, in other words, they'll have vegetables that, were, that would mature in the spring, and in the same painting they'll have vegetables that would mature in the fall. And Erwin and I are always saying, well, likely this was not painted over one day, right? Paint, perhaps this was painted over a period of time. But I think, I think the distribution and the shapes and sizes and colors of these vegetables, you know, contribute to a better understanding of what our vegetables looked like you know, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you can see in here, it, what, what, what is the likelihood, right, that this would all be together at the same time? And which painting is this, Arwen? This is Joachim Buchler. Well, I assume a Dutch painter, right? Yeah. It's a Dutch painter or a German painter. I don't know what year this was painted, but, you know, what is the likelihood that all of these vegetables and fruits would have been ripe at the, on the exact same date? Rather, this is more of a depiction of the bounty of that that province or that area. and So it looks like we see cabbage and strawberries and onions and peaches and carrots and beans. Yep, and some of these potted, you know, whether these are peas or beans, would have, been a, would have come off early in the season. Uh, uh, these, t these fruits here would come, these would, these would be storage vegetables that would have come out later in the season. So I think it, there's a bit of, art, as you say, artistic license here in, in depicting sort of the, the overall bounty of that farm rather than a particular harvest day. You know, and another theme that, that we use in our course is that vegetables really are works of art themselves, right? They are, they are unbelievably gorgeous in and of themselves. And so this really resonates with us that somebody would use it to depict sort of their, their wealth and their, the beauty that they have because, I mean, what could be more beautiful than, that, than, than, than horticultural produce? And ethereal. Sort of like this capturing this moment in time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're really focused on trying to help our students cultivate a much broader perspective. I mean, we could tell them, hey, plant these cabbage seeds, you know, an inch apart and this deep on this date. That's really not what, what an education is all about. I mean, certainly the technical information is important if you're going to grow a cabbage. But what, what, what is lasting and durable is to help our students cultivate a, a deeper perspective, a historical perspective, a, a cultural perspective about these things, and that's really what we're about. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporters tonight were Faye Parks, and for the last time, Aaron Ashley. Thank you for everything, Aaron. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg, and Jonifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, shout out to everybody who donated during our last pledge drive. We really appreciate 
every one of you who supports local community radio station and fun little things like being able to subscribe to the WORT local news as a podcast. Uh, Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Keep listening and good night.